Hey, so we're working our way through the book of Ephesians together. So uh, I want you to really, during this time, if you uh, could open up maybe a tablet or a phone, if you have a Bible app on there, I want you to have these words in front of you. We'll also put these words on the screen. And so last week, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, we kind of discovered that in spite of who we were, in spite of what we've done, in spite of who we follow, that Jesus in his grace, his mercy, in his great kindness, that he had favor on us and he brought us into a relationship with God in which we could have peace with God. And in the back half here, the verses we're going to look at today, we're going to see that not only does the gospel give us peace with God, but it gives us peace with one another. So it brings not only a, a vertical peace between me and God, but it, it also must bring a horizontal peace in my relationships with others, especially people who are different than me. Now, uh, often when people are referring to people who are different from them, they use a certain kind of language. We've all done it. We've all used this kind of language. There's, there's us and then there's who? Them, right? There's us and then there's them. So if you're a Colts fan and you're referencing a Browns fan, there aren't very many of those left, but there are still a few out there. You're going to use this kind of language. You're going to talk about us and then you're going to talk about them. My wife Jackie and I both grew up in West Virginia. And if you're from West Virginia, you hear all about a famous feud between two groups of people, the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? And the Hatfields and the McCoys show us how deeply divided people can really become. When we think politics, right? Politically, there's an us and there's a them. Now, listen, in the early church, there was a huge us and them problem. There were Jews and then there were Gentiles. Now, a Gentile was simply anyone who wasn't Jewish. Uh, Jews and Gentiles were very different from one another. They were different racially, they were different culturally, and they were different from a religious point of view as well. In fact, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Jews were actually commanded to stay foreign or free, not to interact with Gentiles. And so in the early church, there was great confusion about this, and there was great hostility uh, between these two groups of people. Uh, but this, today, we're going to discover that not only does the gospel tear down walls between people and God, but the gospel tears down walls between people groups, between individuals as well. And uh, it's important to note that just as last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, these verses kind of mirror those verses as well. We're going we're gonna to hear who we used to be as Gentiles, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to fig- find out who we are now because of what Christ has done for us. So let's just open up, let's start in verse 11. 
He says this, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. And then there's this parenthetical statement where he kind of wants to make a point. He says, you know, it's just something that's done by men uh, to the human body. Now, in Judaism, circumcision was a sign that you belong to God. So in the Torah, in the Old Testament, God commands Abraham to undergo circumcision at the age of 99 years old as part of a covenant between him and the generations of Jews that were to come. And when God said this to Abraham, I'm sure that Abraham reminded God, you know, God, Noah got a rainbow. I mean, couldn't I just do the rainbow thing? I think that would be a lot easier. How about a romper? I mean, sure, they look ridiculous, but it beats circumcision, right? Especially as a 99-year-old man. And this verse gives you some idea of the struggle between these two groups of people because Jews actually referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcision. And it was meant to be derogatory. It was, it was as if they were somehow uh, by nature inferior to Jews. And of course, in this room, you know, we would all be in that camp, right? We would all be considered Gentiles because most of us in this room aren't Jewish. Uh, So Paul adds this parenthetical statement, which was meant by Jews to be derogatory, and he just reminds these Jewish Christians that, look, circumcision has no spiritual value in and of itself. It's just something that's done to the human body by human hands. It's not a God thing. And then in verse 12, he begins to speak to these Gentile believers, and he says, uh, I want you to remember that at that time, so we're going we're gonna to take a trip back in time and I want you to remember who you used to be. I want you to think about what was true of you. And again, this would be all of us in this room, right? And we said last week that remembering who I was will always bring worship for who I am. Worship to God for what God has done for me. It's so powerful to go back and remember and reflect. And so here's what he says. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ or Messiah. Now remember, until Jesus When Jews thought about the Messiah, they thought about the Messiah in purely a Jewish context. The Messiah was going to come for the Jews. They they didn't widely believe that he was going to come for the whole world. Even though the Old Testament uh, said that very, very clearly. Uh, So in that sense, they were separated from Messiah. And then he goes on and says, not only that, but you were alienated from Israel. In other words, you were outsiders. You were unwelcome. So Jews weren't laying out the welcome mat for Gentiles. In fact, they were very used to withdrawing from Gentiles and doing their own thing in their own way. And then he goes on and says another phrase, you were also strangers to the promises of God. In other words, Gentiles didn't read the Old Testament. Only Jews did that. It was their book, right? So Gentiles weren't familiar with the promises of God. They weren't familiar with the promises God had made to his people or the promises that he'd made regarding the world. 
And then there's kind of a summary statement. He says, really, because you were all three of those things, you were really, you were just without hope because you were without God in the world. I mean, you had no hope. I mean, where were you going to go? Who was going to come for you? Nobody but Jesus showed up right? You were just a people without hope. And then in verse 4, or in verse 13, just like in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, but in the middle of all that, in the middle of your mess, God showed up. God did something. God acted. He moved. He worked. And we're told this in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, that's Gentiles, have been brought near, or in other words, all of us in this room, through the blood of Christ. And then he goes on and says this, for why? He himself is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, hey, I know that you've always, this is a new math equation. I know that you've always heard that one plus one equals two. Most of you believe that, but in Christ, there's a new math. There's a new equation in town. In Christ, the new equation is one plus one equals one. Christ came to make two groups of people that lived acrimoniously against one another, that lived, uh, yeah, he says it this way, there was a dividing wall of hostility between you. And he says, look, Christ has abolished that, and he did it in a couple of ways. First, by becoming our peace, both with God and with others. And then he says he also did it by abolishing the law with its commandments. Now, how did he do that? Well, in a couple of ways. First thing, uh, most of you know this, right? Christ perfectly kept the law. He was the only man who ever lived to live out the law perfectly. He was sinless. So he fulfilled the law in the sense that he kept it. But he also abolished the law by offering himself once for all as the final offering for sin. So because of Jesus' sacrifice, there would no longer be any need to sacrifice things like doves or oxen or lambs or goats or sheep. Jesus uh, ended that practice once and for all. And then we're told this in verses 16 and 17. And in this one body, to, he reconciled both of them, again, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, I wonder in your life, where does God need to poke and prod to put some death, to put to death some hostility? I mean, who is there that maybe you're, there's a wall of division, there's some hostility, and you need to begin to tear that down. You need to begin to remove that from your life. That's what Jesus did. He came, we're told, and preached peace to you who were far away, that's us in this room, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, in other words, Jews. 
So what he's saying is, look, the same gospel of peace was preached to both groups of people, to Jews and to Gentiles. And here's what God wants us to know. God is so passionate about the oneness, about the unity of his body. Jesus wants no ethnic barriers in his church. He wants no racial barriers in his church. He wants no cultural barriers in his church. He wants no economic barriers in his church. And what's so amazing about these verses is in Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in securing our salvation. And in these verses, we're told that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the whole Trinity, every member of the Godhead was involved in securing not only our peace with God, but our, the peace we're meant to live out with one another. And so here's what this means. Let's just get practical for a minute. It means that Jesus wants no division in his body regarding matters of conscience. So, for example, we just went through a pandemic. It looks like we may be on the backside of that. But I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen such polarization and I've never seen such polar, polarization attempt to come in to a church over something as silly as a mask. You know, oh, you should wear it. Oh, you shouldn't. Paul says that in matters of conscience, there's to be no division in the body. Shot or no shot. Regardless of where you stand on that issue, there is to be no division in the body. Your, your, who you are in Christ is far more important than what you will or won't wear on your face or what you will or won't take into your body. What Jesus has done for you is far more substantive than that. Listen, here's what I'm saying. We can have strong opinions. I'm not saying that you, shouldn't, you can't have strong opinions. I'm just telling you that our union in Christ needs to be stronger than even your strong opinions. It's our world needs to see a unified church. We need to learn how to disagree with one another and still honor and love one another. Friends, the essence of love, the, I mean, when you boil it down to its bare essence, it, at its bare essence, you know what love is? Love is learning how to love someone who is different than you, who thinks differently than you, who processes differently than you, who feels differently than you, who has different perspectives than you. And learning how to build them up and be beneficial to them. To add value to their, to their lives. See, here's what I'm saying. Minor doctrinal differences should never divide a church. Now, there is some doctrine worth um, getting clear about. 
So, for example, is the Bible God's word or is it just a collection of myths and fables? We believe here it's God's word, right? I mean, is salvation, is there no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus? We're going to stand strong on that when we would encourage you to as well. But, you know, you start getting into things like eschatology or the end times. One of our old elders used to say, I'm a pan-millennialist. I think everything's going to pan out in the end. And listen, if you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, that's true. As long as we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. Hey, I want to show you a picture. So this is actually a picture of one of the most fragile things on the planet. This is a snowflake. Now, what's interesting about snowflakes is they're a lot like people in the sense that um, each one is utterly unique. Uh, But this is a very, very fragile thing. So, in other words, uh, just a tiny bit of pressure will crush this. Uh, Just a slight rise in temperature will obliterate this. But... Do you know what happens when a bunch of snowflakes act in unity? This happens. I mean, you can take one of the most fragile things in nature, but you put them all together, I mean, that'll stop traffic. That'll stop the world right there. Friends, that's what unity does in a local church. I mean, you take a bunch of broken, fragile people and you put them together and you teach them how to love people that disagree with them, how to honor people that are different from them. And listen, that'll stop traffic. People will stop to watch that. They'll stop to look at that. They'll take notice of that. And it's the call. It's what we're called to do. Why? And we're told right here, because he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Here's what I'm telling you this morning. Unity is a call and a byproduct of the gospel. Part of the gospel is not only does Jesus bring peace between God and men, but he also came to bring peace between groups of people who would normally be hostile to one another, who, was no, who would normally stand divided, who would normally use language like, well, it's us and it's them. And he's, he's saying, no, it is not us and them. It's just we. It's just us. There is no them in Christ. There's none. And then he goes on to say this, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you, you Gentiles, you're you're fellow citizens with God's people and you're members of God's very own household. And you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too 
are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's a beautiful picture he's painting. He's saying that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in the community, not just in individual believers, but in, this is a communal indwelling. That's why he uses terms like it rises up into a holy dwelling and a holy temple. So he's saying, look, if that one spirit lives in us communally, how seriously should we take things like uh, encouraging other people and unity? So he says, look, he says, you're fellow citizens, your citizenship, you have the same citizenship as the Jews had under the old covenant. And you're not only are you fellow citizens, but you're members of God's household. In other words, you know what he's saying? Look, you're family now. You're family now. You belong together. You believe together. You hope together. You're family and then in the next few verses, Paul's going to talk about this as just a mystery. Because to Jews, it was unfathomable that they would be in a body with a group of people that were outside of Judaism. And so we, Paul talks about that and he just says, hey, it's a mystery, but it's one that God had planned from the foundation of the world. God's not shocked by it, he says. And then a few verses later, Paul's going to come right back to this theme of Christian unity that's so prevalent in Ephesians chapter 2. So just a few verses later, we're going to look at those verses. This is in Ephesians, the beginning of chapter 4. Here's what he says. Make every effort. Let's stop there. Every. Make every. The word every. He says, I want you to do this in everything. Every word. Every action. Every interaction, every interchange, I want you to do this all the time. Do it in everything. Live this out all the time. And then notice, make every what? What's the next word? Effort. In other words, this is going to be work. It's not going to come naturally. It's not going to be easy. If you've been married for more than about five minutes, you know the kind of effort it takes to live at peace with someone else, right, who thinks differently than you do, who has different priorities than you do. This is one of the reasons I absolutely love marriage so much because marriage is the ultimate opportunity to learn how to love and honor someone who is different than you, who has different perspectives, a different way of thinking, a different way of relating, different needs. And <laughs> yeah, all right. We're excited now. Yeah. So we're, we're keeping this unity. Notice also that we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. You know what he's saying? Look, the Holy Spirit's already come and brought unity. You just have to keep it. You just have to maintain it. You just have to walk that out. You just have to live that out. It's already here. It's already in the room. So... All of us understand what it means to maintain a car, right? You, every car needs routine maintenance. In the same way, friends, every relationship, every relationship needs routine maintenance. Relationships don't do well without routine maintenance. And I would just say this, you know, in relation to this, that um, two things 
go into maintaining a relationship. The first is humility. Mike's going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Uh, just humility. Just so, so look, you know what it means to lay down your pride? It means that you lay down the need to be right. It means that you lay down uh, the need to, you know, have, an, have a leg up on somebody else. We, so our staff went to a conference at Trader's Point. One of our staff members put up a, a poster in our office that I love because the guy was talking about Starbucks coffee and he was talking about how, you know, in Starbucks you got, I don't know the Starbucks language, right? But you got large, you got medium, and you got small. And, uh, and he says, look, in, in a church, we should th- everybody should think of themselves soberly. So what that means is nobody should act big. Nobody should act small because Jesus has said he loves us and accept us, accepts us and we can have confidence with God. So everybody in a church should just act medium. And I think that's a great phrase. Everybody in church should just act medium. Everybody. And then he goes on and he says this. And then the second thing, so there's pride. And then the second thing is just listening. Learning how to truly listen to other people and be curious about them. So how many of you have ever been in a discussion and it's a little heated, there's maybe a little dividing wall of hostility between you and another person and you're, and, and, you know, you're, you're, you're ratcheting it up and then they start to say something and what do you do? Well, no, 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 yeah, like we start to interrupt one another, don't we? And we start to try to talk over each other. And then we start becoming more interested in just getting our perspective across. No, listen, humility seeks to understand someone else. It lays down the right to need to be heard or need to be understood. Because God understands us perfectly every one of us, and still loves us, and still accepts us. This is incredible to me. So then he goes on, and he he goes through a list. He kind of starts to talk about the foundational elements that are present in a church. Uh, In other words, the way that the Holy Spirit brings unity to the church. He talks about seven ingredients or seven oneness in the cement of our unity, I just want to walk through those. It's such a beautiful passage. He says, first of all, we're all part of one body. There's, There's one body. Now, do you know what we call it when a body fights against itself? That's a disease. That's called autoimmune disease. See, bodies are meant to function as a cohesive whole. We are one body. And so I'm just saying this, when the body doesn't function as if it's one, that's cancer. And it needs to be removed. There's one body. And then he goes on and he says, look, there's one spirit. There's one spirit. Now, and he's referring to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit resides, if you've said yes to Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, the Holy Spirit resides within you. He guides and corrects us. The Holy Spirit always keeps us in step with Jesus and in step with one another. 
The Spirit always leads toward unity, exactly as Jesus prayed for it. Think about this. One day, Jesus is in a garden. He's going to the cross. But does he pray only for himself? No. You know what he does first? Before he prays for himself, he prays that you and I would live and walk together in love and unity. He said, Father, I want you to make them one even as you and I are one. So let me ask you, how are you doing at the oneness thing in your marriage? Boy, it got really quiet in here. <laughs> how are you doing with that? There's one spirit, right? So let me ask you another question. Where is the spirit of God prompting you to speak an encouraging or a unifying word to another brother or sister in Christ? Where is the Holy Spirit of God, the one spirit, calling you to speak an encouraging or a unifying word to another brother or sister in Christ? So listen, one of the reasons I love, absolutely love the book of Ephesians is because you get to chapter 6 and he starts to talk about something called spiritual warfare. And he, what he actually says in Ephesians 6 is, hey, when you look out at the world, you know, right, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our battle isn't with one another. It's with the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. So Peter, when he talks about the spiritual forces of darkness in this world, he says it like this. He says, hey, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I want you to think about a lion for a minute in nature. When a lion wants to attack a herd, a group of animals, what does that pride of lions always do? They try to separate, they try to isolate a member of that herd from the rest of the herd. So I'm going to make a bold statement. If you are a Christian who refuses or is not living in community, you are in great danger. You are in great danger. Because you have an enemy who seeks to divide, who seeks to pull you away from the herd because he knows that apart from the herd, you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable. One spirit, one spirit. So he says, look, you have one body, you have one spirit. And then he goes on to say, look, you have one hope, one hope. And this isn't nebulous. Listen, this is the hope that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. It's the hope that we have been chosen and adopted by the Father, the hope that we have been purchased and redeemed by the Son, and it's the hope that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all involved in securing our salvation. So what he's saying is, look, we've all been chosen by God in the same way. We've all been adopted by God in the same way. We've all been purchased and redeemed by the Son in the same way. We've all been sealed by the Holy Spirit in the same way. It's one hope. It's one hope. It's not two hopes for two different groups of people. It's one hope. And it's one Lord. It's one Lord. Listen, 
The lordship of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christian unity. Now listen, you know this, but everybody, see it isn't that Christians serve Jesus and other people don't serve anybody. Everybody serves somebody. Everybody does. Everybody serves something because we all serve our idols. So if our idol is approval from others, we'll go, we'll do almost anything to get approval from others. If our idol is money, we'll do almost everything to accumulate more money. I mean, whatever our idols are, that's what we serve because that's what idols do. Idols beckon us to serve them. So everybody serves someone or something. Someone or something is Lord of their life. But do you know who's Lord in this room, friends? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Do you know that? Do you know him as that? Do you walk with him every single day as Lord? Do you surrender to his lordship? Do you submit to him as Lord? Jesus is Lord. Is he Lord of your life? And he goes on to say this, not only is there one Lord, but there's just one faith, one faith. Now, faith is what unites us. We were told a little earlier in Ephesians 2, right? Faith is what unites us to Jesus in the first place. And so what he's highlighting here is he's saying, look, we all came to Jesus in the same way. None of us earned it. None of us deserved it. It was just poured out on us freely because of who he is. You know, such a beautiful thing, just one faith. So let me ask you this question. Are you here this morning? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? There's only one way to do it, one faith. And then he says, not only is there one faith, but there's one baptism, one baptism. What I love about baptism is baptism is one body gathering to to generally celebrate one life at a time because it's really hard, not impossible, we've done it differently, but it's really hard uh, to baptize more than one person at a time. See, baptism causes you to reflect life on life. It's one body generally celebrating one life at a time. One baptism. See, uh, Listen, baptism is what outs us publicly as followers of Jesus. Baptism is how Christians come out of the closet. Baptism is what we do to demonstrate that we belong to him. And he's saying, look, we were all baptized. We were all immersed in the same way. And then finally, he concludes with this amazing statement. He says, there is one God, one God and one Father who is in all and over all and through all. Now, when a Jew heard that phrase, there is one God, they would think of a foundational passage uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. So they would think of this, and this was the beginning of something that was called the Shema. It was foundational to Judaism, the Shema. Every Jew knew it. So when Paul uses this language, he's doing that very purposely. There is one God and one Father. Now listen, 
The fact that we have one father means that we are one family, that every one of us in this room, if we've said yes to Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Now, when I was growing up, my mom, so, you know, we were like all of you, right? You know, my brothers and sisters sat too close to me in the car. They breathed on me when I didn't want them to. And so we were always bickering, you know, about space issues and uh, hunger issues and food issues and who was going to get what and who was going to do what. And my mom and dad would always kind of come back to the same lecture just time and time and time again. They, and maybe you heard this in your home. They would say, listen, listen. You're only going to have, in our case, they would say, you're only going to have one brother for the rest of your life. And then if I was in a disagreement with my sister, my mom would intervene and she would say, listen, you're just going to have one sister for the rest of your life. And one day, your mommy and daddy are going to be dead and all that's going to be left is your brothers and sisters and you're a family. And so I want you to love each other. I need for you to get along. I need for you to be willing to share with your brother and sister. And then if it was really bad, they would say, hey, well, you know, you're the oldest. So you've kind of got to lead the way. I hated when they did that. (laughs) You know, isn't, I mean, if you're a parent and you love your kids, one of the things that we all want for our kids It's for them to love each other, for them to honor one another, for them to be devoted to one another, to give their best, you know, to have one another's back through thick and thin. Well, we have a heavenly father. We have a parent. And what he wants for us more than anything else is to be brothers and sisters who have each other's backs that live as one, that believe in the new math of Jesus, that one plus one does not always equal two. Because of Jesus, one plus one is meant to equal one, just one. The new math of the gospel is so beautiful. So let me ask you, Is there a wall of division between you and someone else that you need to begin to dismantle? The gospel calls you to that. The gospel demands that of you. Is there, let me ask a different question, is there someone in your life and you've accumulated some bitterness and they're a follower of Jesus, they're a brother or a sister. They may even also be your husband or your wife. They may be a parent. It may be a child, but God is calling you through the power of the gospel to forgive, to move on, because the Holy Spirit is going to give you the strength and the power to do that. He indwells you. He paved the road for for unity. He did that for you. You know what's so beautiful about this call of family to have one another's back? So I mentioned that when I was growing up, I would hear my mom do it. And then many, many years later, much more recently in my own life, I would find my my own self having that same exact conversation with my own kids. Or I would hear my wife, who was 
even more passionate about it than I was, I would hear my wife in her sweet, authoritative little voice saying to our kids, you're only going to have one brother. You're only going to have one sister. You know, love them. Get along. And I got to tell you, as parents myself, as a, as a parent, nothing gives me more joy as a parent than seeing my, our children love one another. Nothing. And God is no different. We have one God and one Father who is in all and over all and through all. And we need to live surrendered to him every day. And one of the things that means is unity. Extraordinary unity. So let me pray for you and us and then we're going to respond with some worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its power. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you today, Lord Jesus, that not only have you made peace between me and my Jesus, but you have made peace between me and people who are different than me, whether it be the color of their skin, the way that they think, the things that they value, the political party that they're a part of, what they believe about masks or shots. God, you have made us one, period. So help us live out of that truth and that knowledge today. We ask and pray in the mighty name of our Jesus. Amen. Hey, would you stand and let's worship our God together.